Well, we are in a study through Proverbs. We're not going through Proverbs verse by verse from chapter 1 to chapter 31. We're picking sections of Proverbs and we're going to learn how to live wisely in a foolish world. And that's what wisdom means. Wisdom means skillful living. Wisdom is a gift from God to enable us to live skillfully, morally before his sight. And we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 6 today. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 18. You may be familiar with them. You may not be familiar with them. So I'm, I'm preaching out of the English Standard Version. And your version might say a little uh, different in some of the translations, but hopefully it will be made clear as we go throughout this message. 100 years of Christian unity, fellowship, and community outreach came to an absolute abrupt end in a fit of congregational discord, almost unrivaled in that century. In August 1999, Landover, Maryland, not too far from here, Holy Creek Baptist Church split into factions over, now listen, an old piano bench. You see, the piano bench, which still sits behind the 1923 Steinway piano to the left of the pulpit, had always been a source of hostility. Nobody knows why. It's just that the piano bench creates a lot of hostility. And outside pastors, after they split, had to come in to mediate the dispute. And they decided that each faction in the church will have its own separate pastor, since the head pastor and the associate pastor won't speak to each other any longer. And the services are far enough removed, or far enough apart from each other, that neither group comes into contact with the other. An outside party moves the piano bench to different locations at different positions between services to please both sides and avoid any further conflict. That's a true story. 1999. Never been in a church split. It'd be pretty ugly. So wisdom, and we're going to see it from our passage, wisdom offers skillful living. That's the name, the word wisdom means skillful living. Wisdom offers skillful living, listen, for a unified church. And this is the focus in our passage that we're going to be looking at today, Proverbs 6, and we're going to be, begin in verse 16. So if you can look at verse 16, this is the way that you can watch what I'm preaching and make sure that what I'm saying is the Word of God and accurately interpreted. So here we go, verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates. Does that have your attention there? You know that God hates things? So there are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Alright, so let's get our bearings. We're going to see this week after week. We've got Solomon, who's teaching his son. Look down a few more verses. My son, he says. So he's teaching his children. He's teaching his son. This is what fathers do. Fathers ought to teach. Mothers ought to teach wisdom to the children. This is how they taught the, the young in Israel, who were future leaders of the nation. They began schools, as you know, 
and then the Chesters, they're the only ones involved in a school on the other side of the world, but Israel had schools as well. And their schools were intended to treat, to teach rather, the young to be able to grow up to be wise. So we're allowed to eavesdrop on Solomon's teaching. Now here's Solomon, he's teaching his, his son. It's like we're out in the country meadow while he's talking to his son. His son, he and his son, maybe they're sitting on rocks, maybe they're sitting by a creek, maybe they're sitting in the palace somewhere. But Solomon begins to turn to his son and he says, my son, let me teach you some wisdom about what God means. By the way, this is a literary device. This is a teaching device. Let me read it again. Six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. This is a way to help the young people memorize. It's not an exhaustive list. There are more things that God hates than are right here. God hates the Lord, yet that's not included in this list. But it's a literary device, and it's seen in other parts of the Bible as well. Let me give you two examples. Job chapter 5. He will deliver you from six troubles, and seven, no evil shall teach you. There's that same device. Or Proverbs 30, three things are too wonderful for me, for I do not understand. It's all through the Bible, this, this way of teaching, this teaching style that allows you to be able to memorize a list of three evils. And let me show you something about this literary device that I learned it this last week. See, when you use this teaching tool, now listen, if you don't get this, you literally cannot understand the sermon. This will make sense of the entire message that I'm about to preach. When you use this teaching tool, the last item in the list is the focus of all the rest. Did you hear that? See, God hates the first six things in this list, but there's a seventh one that gathers up into itself all that is most hateful to him. The seventh is the key to understanding the other six, because all six point to the seventh. All six brings out the seventh. What does it say? Look at the very end, the seventh one, discord. All of them are about discord. If you really want to know what God hates above all the other ones in this list, it's discord. And all the other six lend itself towards discord, towards dissension, towards the congregation in Maryland that factioned and split over a piano bench. That God hates. It's an abomination. He hates discord with a passion. Now listen, I'm going to tell you, we're going to look into the Hebrew meanings of these words, but let me give you a foretaste. He hates discord so so badly that it, it, it utterly turns his stomach at the deepest level of his being. I want you to look at the word hate. You've got hate and you've got abomination. Very strong words. And there are many who still elevate the scripture that God is love, right? First John 4, God is love. That they don't have room for anything that says that God actually hates something. I mean, how can God be a God of love and actually hate something? You see, God's hatred, unlike what ours often is, it's not vindictive. Now, are you hearing that? You've got to understand this. God's hatred is not vindictive. It's not 
a hate that we can usually identify with, but God's not stomping around in the throne room barking out kill orders to black ops angels. Okay, that's not what it means when God hates. It's a strong moral and emotional reaction against that which opposes his character. Then you hear that? When it talks about God hating, it's a strong emotional moral reaction against that which goes against who he is, his character. See, hate includes the idea of ugliness, of deformity, of loathing. See, when God hates, it creates a repulsive reaction at its deepest level. I mean, look at verse 16 again. We already read it. Look at it again. Seven that are abominations to him. You see that word again? If I were you, and you've got a pen, and you've got your Bible open, I'd underline the word him. And I would put in parentheses to put a line to the word soul. I would write the word soul, because that's the Hebrew word for the, the word soul. Like your own soul. There's something that God hates, the thing Solomon's teaching his son, but there's a seventh one that's an abomination to his very soul, the very deepest part of who God is, the very center of God's being reacts against his course. See, Solomon's talking about, talking about an abomination. Let me read it one more time. Seven that are an abomination in the notice if you're a Marvel comic fan, not talking about cults, nemesis, the abomination there. That's not what it means. Abomination has a deeper meaning. It's a word that means abhorrent or offensive or a strong revulsion. Or in other words, it's something that turns God's stomach. You know that God can have his stomach turned? God doesn't have a body. The spirit. He does have a body. Same with Jesus. And when Jesus would walk throughout his ministry, and the Bible says that he had compassion on that leper, it literally means kicked in the gut. It means his stomach turned on the suffering of that leper, and it moved him to do something about it. God feels very much. God loves us very much. God is very, very joyful when we obey Him. God hates things that oppose His character. God finds an abomination to discord in the church and to other things, as the Bible talks about, that actually make Him feel sick in His stomach, so to speak. See, God's a feeling, no, God's not some rational only being that's aesthetically above all feelings. Like you can't identify when you feel despair or you feel sorrow. God feels. He feels deeper than we ever will. So the very deepest part of God, there's a revulsion at this list of seven terrible evils. And what God hates, by the way, whatever God hates, it's opposite of what he loves. So if God hates discourse, he finds it revolt, revolting to him, then you tip it on its edge, and what he loves is unity. What he loves is when we come around one another in fellowship, we overcome our differences, and we don't we apply grace to the things that annoy us, and we say we're going to love more than we're going to divide. God finds that extremely 
In fact, the psalmist said, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. So as we're about to delve into, we're going to dive into these seven deadly sins, I want to remember, I want to keep reminding you that the chief concern of God's mind, the chief lesson in Solomon's teaching, is that discord or dissension or strife or division in God's people is an abomination to him. Now let's read what he says in verse 17. What God hates are these, the fine eyes. Secondly, a lying tongue. Now let's look at the Bible. Do you know what I'm saying this way? Third, hands that shed innocent blood. Fourth, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who brings out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Let's look at each one. Haiyai. The root of all of these seven you can find in haughty eyes. Haughty eyes are the gateway to the pride in the heart. Pride in the heart finds its expression through your eyes. Haughty eyes. Can I ask you a question real quick? I only want you to think of me. Is there really anybody here in there? that do not struggle with pride. And I don't mean every once in a while there's a little flutter of pride that goes through. I mean all the time, every day, pride pulses through. It is a constant battle against the very root of it all. Haughty eyes are eyes that are raised up in pride, up in self-exaltation, they refuse to drop out of respect for others or God. There are some cultures that when they look at you, they will, out of respect, drop their eyes. And what they're saying when they do that, or what they're communicating when they do that, is that I have respect for you. You are greater than I. I will not look you from an up. I will not look down at you from an upward position. I will look up at you from a lower position. And my eyes will be like that. But haughty eyes refuse to drop. Because pride always seeks the upper position. For you save, the psalmist says, you save a humble heart of a humble people. But the haughty eyes you bring there down. Because they're up here. Pride always moves you, friend, it moves me to an upward position. I want leverage. I want to be exalted. I don't want to be down here. That word humility is. The humility is. Humility means biblically to lie low to the ground. Pride means to exalt yourself. Pride moves you up. Humility places you down. He got through Satan down from the heights of his pride, threw him down to the earth. Satan, in turn, appealed to pride in Eve. Nebuchadnezzar, in Daniel chapter 4, had haughty eyes. Here's what he said. Is not this great Babylon? He got on the porch of his palace, overlooking this amazing city. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence, and for the glory of my majesty? 
and haughty eyes. So how interesting that all seven, all seven in this list, find their opposite perfection in Christ. Here's what Philippians says, who Jesus, who, who though he was the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing that he grasped, and held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of the servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. And here's the greatest example. Jesus, who came from heaven as high as you'll ever get, came down to earth, humbled himself even to the point where he became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. If you want to know what haughty eyes look like, and it's most opposite, pure, extreme, you've got Jesus. See, haughty eyes are connected to prideful hearts. And they look at other people, I want you to examine them, this is what wisdom does. Wisdom offers us skillful living. How do we live in unity in the church? Well, if you've got haughty eyes, you're not going to be very much bent towards unity. At least not when somebody does something that you don't agree with and you don't like. And when they do something you don't like or you don't agree with, all of a sudden the pride in your heart comes alive and you respond, either you leave that person, you distance that person, you don't want that person, or you go to that person to get them in line with what you want them to do. See, those with haughty eyes are not serving to others. They only promote unity when it's in their interest. This, this arrogance that leads to all the other sins in this world. Look at number two. Look at haughty eyes. Here's number two, a lying tongue. I want you to grab hold of your tongue now, literally. I want you to grab hold of your tongue in your mind. How do you do with you? Did only truth come from your mouth? Is your mouth only used to build others up according to their need? of the moment that it might give grace to all those who hear. You know, there's a boy in a Sunday school class who once said, quote, a lie is an abomination unto the Lord, but a very present help in a time of trouble. Listen, a person with a lying tongue, here it is, ready? That person, and this might be some has no regard for truth. I mean, it doesn't matter what flows off the tongue to distort reality for their own purposes. Why does God hate this so much? Well, let's take it again. Let's take it to its most opposite extreme. You find its most opposite in Christ, who is the truth. Here's what he says I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God has never lied. God never told a half truth. Jesus never shaded anything. Jesus never spoke in a way to put himself in the best light, even if it wasn't quite all the information or even all the most accurate information. He never did that. See, lies are a deadly force that divide and destroy churches. And lies distort reality for one's own purposes, refusing to submit to right and wrong, they fall from pride and are motivated by saying, who is ironically called the father of lies. Now, I recently read about the very strongest muscle in the human body. 
I'm sorry to respond, I have heard that before. You come to find out, come to learn, it's not really the tongue, it's the muscle called the masseter muscle. It's in the very back of your jaw. It can exert a force of 200 pounds on an object at the rear molar. It's that thick muscle in the cheek. It's at the back of the jaw. It's responsible for opening and closing your jaw during, during chewing. You work this one out when you're talking and chewing, not at the gym. This is a muscle that is incredibly strong. And Solomon's wisdom would teach us to, to skillfully clamp that jaw muscle and stop that lie from coming out of our mouth, knowing that God pays the damage that it's going to do in relationships that it can do in the church. When that impulse from your pride says, I'm going to lie, and listen, we only lie ever for our own benefit. I want you to think today. You only ever lie for your own benefit. It's why pride ultimately. And God would so give you wisdom to be able to skillfully say, no, I will not let that come out of my mouth because it cannot build up the body. It cannot edify the church. It can only divide and destroy. You ever know anybody that's a strong fire? You ever trust them? If you're a chronic liar, or if you, cry, if you lie to suit your own purposes, then what you do is destroy the ability of people to ever trust you. Dividing and destroying relationships. Look at the third one. And hands that shed innocent blood. You know, our church has been, our church's leadership has been praying for months, and I want to really hear this. This is exciting. Trying to discern from the Lord where God is directing our steps by way of international missions. And we've all sensed, this is unanimous among the church board, we've all sensed God directing us toward the Democratic, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the DRC. The level of suffering in the lives of, of women and children in the DRC staggers the imagination. In fact, our denomination, the Evangelical Free Church of America, has an incredible presence in the Congo, Biblical Seminary, which many of us have partnered with, the American Bible Society, Bob Gray, Blue Maintenance, and others, all have a growing presence in the DRC, all hoping to bring the gospel of hope to people who are torn apart, listen, by hands that shed innocent blood. So one of the ways that we're already moving in that direction is through a ministry that was begun by people from our own church called She's My Sister. And every summer now, for the last three, this will be the fourth, I think, or fifth, every summer, those who participate ride their bicycles along a pre-planned route, one year all the way from Miami to Maine, this year from Daytona Beach to Miami. They, run, they ride that route and they stop at churches. They're educating churches to all of the suffering that's happening. They're raising support for these women and these children whose lives are being decimated. And they're standing up for justice and love and so forth. God hates 
Canaan that shed innocent blood. For the life of every creature is its blood, its blood is its life, Leviticus says. God puts a supreme value on human life. To shed blood, by the way, that means to kill. It doesn't mean to poke a syringe in and pull a pint out and you just shed blood. When the Bible talks about shedding blood, it means to shed blood to death. It means to kill the person. To shed blood means to despise life. And if you despise life, listen, then you despise the one who's given it. And whether that murder is of an adult or a child or, listen, an unborn child, it's repulsive to God, and he is against it because it's against his character. Friends, wisdom, wisdom would have us live skillfully, learning to preserve and to promote human life, working for justice to be delivered. So you can get involved in tearing that pregnancy center. You can get involved in the She's My Sister's Wife Tour. You can get ready to partner with us as we move more and more to the DRC and stand with our Christian brothers and sisters. God hates sin to shed innocent blood. Look at the fourth one. I'm going through every one of these deserves a sermon at its own, but we're going to hit them all today. The fourth one is a heart that devises wicked plans. Jeremiah 17 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I'm going to unpack that for a moment. The heart is deceitful. You know what that word means? I'm going to go up here with the word Really, two main people used that word deceitful back in the ancient days. Road builders and hunters. The way that hunters used it, it means many tracks, or main tracks. They would follow a deer, perhaps, and when it got into a muddy terrain, and other deer were crisscrossing, they would lose their tracks, the deer, the deer that they were stalking. That means you can start to see your heart, but once you go down deep enough, it gets very dark, and it gets very myriad, and it gets very difficult to keep seeing it accurately, you lose the track. The other way that it was used is by road builders. See, if you're, if you're building a road up a mountain or up a hill, they had to get to a point where they had to create footpaths, and you couldn't see what was coming around the corner. That inability to see what was coming around the corner is just more what God is saying is, listen, the heart, you can't see it. You cannot plumb the depths of your heart. You cannot get down there to see it with crystal clarity. God can, verse 10 says, in Jeremiah 17, but we can't. He has to reveal it for you. So a heart that devises wicked plans is down deep where evil loves to live. Now, I want you to take Proverbs 6, and if you go back to verse 12, look back there a few verses. Look what it says. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his fingers. With perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. You see that connection? When you see that, you've got to see there's a heart that is uh, that divides and wicked plans over what verse 14 says, continually sows discord. So there's six, six things that God hates. The seventh is an abomination to him. All six lead to the seventh. Anything that promotes discord, God's stomach turns. 
See, a heart that divides the good plans is one that is bent on planting seeds of disunity. The winds grow and they're gonna, when they grow those seeds, when they blossom, they're going to accomplish the plan of the one sowing, and that is to divide and to destroy. In fact, the word divides is a verb. You know what it means? It means to plow. You can actually retranslate that verse to the heart that plows wickedness, evil seeds. You gotta plow the ground before you plant the seed. You gotta plow it deeply and put the seed in and then it can take root and grow. What Hosea says is plowed iniquity will root and justice. What you plow is gonna root. And maybe it's that hushed comment at the water cooler at work. You know, we are whispered, but you know what happened to that person. See, this person's always looking for a way to gain the advantage, always ready to drop that seed that will eventually cause division, always trying to get people to align with you so that you create division with the other person. Look at the fifth one, feet that make haste to run to evil. Now, when you see the word feet throughout the Bible, it's often metaphorical for the direction in life that we choose. For instance, Proverbs 5 5 says, Her feet go down to death, and death follows the path to Sheol. We're talking about feet here, we're talking about the direction in life that somebody chooses. So, feet that make haste to run to evil, that's the direction that they're running in. And they're running in it urgently. There is urgency in them. And God hates the urgency of the wicked to choose a path in life that harms others. Wisdom teaches us to take the better path. In Romans 10 15, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. In other words, how beautiful the Chesters who have gone to Kenya to preach the good news. How, feet, how beautiful are your feet when you choose paths of life that say, This is going to give me the opportunity to preach the gospel. Look at the sixth one, a false witness that who brings out lies. Let's slow down a little bit on this one. Because it's a direct disobedience to the ninth commandment that God gave, which said, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, I want you to climb inside the ancient world, right? I want you to think, I want you to think with modern thinking back 3,000 years ago. I mean, this is likely written around 1,000 BC. They didn't have to learn to die. I know that's an alien talk to us. They didn't have fingerprint dusting equipment. There were no security tapes. There were no DNA labs. The accused 3,000 years ago, listen, weren't presumed innocent until proven guilty. You've got to hear this. They were presumed guilty until proven innocent in the pagan world. Did you hear that? Completely different than what it's supposed to be today. People could be convicted in the ancient pagan world, not Israel. They could be convicted on the strength of a single witness. How would you like that? Somebody did like you. And they testified in court that you were guilty of something. In fact, you were innocent kid like you. You could be convicted on their testimony. 
brings new meaning, doesn't it? To the words death and life are in the power to come. That can be translated literally that you can, you can acquit somebody or you can condemn somebody in the ancient court by your testimony. But in Israel, not in the saving world, but in Israel, God's safeguard is justice. They had to have a jury of elders to judge. There had to be more than one witness. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Deuteronomy 19. Listen, when God gave that command through Moses to Israel, that was utterly unlike the rest of the world. Because God the God of justice. And the witness had to be examined independently. Hearsay was absolutely excluded from a trial in Israel. And any contradiction between witnesses rendered the entire evidence invalid. Now listen to this, I'm going to listen to In case of the death penalty, so here we go, we had a trial in Israel, the death penalty. The witness was to be solemnly warned. You were the witness, one of the two, or three. You had a viewer to be solemnly warned that you were responsible for the life of the person on trial and for his children who will never be born to him. That's how they trusted. A person who was convicted of being a false witness had to pay the same penalty as the man on trial would have paid if the charge had been true. If it was a capital case, then the false witness was killed. If it was a case of lashes, 39 to 40 lashes, then the false witness was given them, except it was double to 80 in some cases to disparage false witnesses. See, God was very concerned with justice. It would say it's a capital trial where the penalty was stoning to death. The leading witness, listen, you've got to get this. This is a trial now. Somebody is now being tried, and the, and, the, and the death penalty by stoning would be in charge, would be the sentence. And if you were the witness that led to a condemnation sentence where he wanted to be killed, listen, here's what you would have had to do. You would have had to throw the person off the cliff, and then you would have rolled the first stone on him. See, there's a lot of peace, a lot of gravity to be hopeful. God was very concerned with justice. He hated, hated the lying witness. Why do you think he did? Slander is a false witness. Did he slander somebody? Slander springs from the desire to have power over other people. It reduces another person's name and reputation, which is motivated deeper still by a, a desire to increase your own. This is why we slander. We slander to reduce, to divide, and elevate. We reduce the person, we divide them from the community of our friends, and we elevate ourselves over them. That's why slander is a false witness. An old sailing story where one day a mate who seldom got drunk was inebriated. He got drunk. And the captain wrote in the log book, the mate is drunk today. So he begged the captain on the next day, he begged him to take the condemning line and erase it because when they got into port, then the trial would begin. But the captain refused. So the next day, it was the mate's turn 
seeking the Lord wrote that he wrote that Captain gets sober today. That's slander. It's particularly vicious form of it. Gossip is another form of slander. It's a lie of malice. Listen, even if what you're saying contains truth, it's slander. It's gossip. It's a false witness. It is secret slander. This is why the Greek word, you know what the Greek word for gospel means? It means whispering. This is a false witness. This is a lie of the tongue. It's as wrong to listen to gossip as it is to actually speak. And listen, if you've got somebody that comes to you and they lower their mouth, this is the way you do it. They lower their voice and they say, You listen to that. You're as guilty of gossiping as the person speaking. If you want to learn to stop gossiping, here it is. Right? I'm going to cure all of us of gossiping slander. <laughs> if you want to learn to stop gossiping, you want to make sure you never slander again. Here's what you do. You go ask for forgiveness of the one that you gossiping in You go tell them what you did and ask them to forgive you. You will. Be very, very good at skillfully and you're not aggressive at You see, we lie to try to escape consequences of something that we've done. We let slip inaccuracy into what we say. We become indifferent to it. These are all lies. These are false witnesses. We exaggerate. We put ourselves in the best light possible. It's a false witness. So the psalmist says, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth, to watch over the door of my lips. So we've seen six things that God hates, and they're all leading to the seventh. Remember the teaching device, six things that God hates, seven that are abomination here. That means the seventh one is where all the other six are leading, and here it is. One who sows discord among brothers. Discord among God's people affects him to the very core of his being. And wisdom would have us learn the, the skill of humility with one another, seeking to elevate those around us rather than ourselves. Suppose you were working at your job and you had a co-worker who got promoted and you didn't. You know what wisdom is going to teach you? You know what's going to please God? It's going to be to thank God for your co-worker's promotion. It's to be genuinely joyful and happy for Realizing that if God wanted you to have that promotion, He would have brought it about. He was sovereign. There's something for you to learn in the lack of promotion. Or when you're taking your exams and your grade wasn't that good, and other people in the class got a really great, a really good grade. Are you able to really be thankful for them, thanking God on their behalf? Thank you, God, for blessing with this grade, and thank you. I'm content with what I've got, but let me work harder to please you. Or that house that might be bigger than yours. Are you thankful? that that person was able to get it and use it for the glory of God. Or that health that you haven't enjoyed for years, are you thankful that healthy people have that health? 
or that car that you're driving, or the ability to be able to take a vacation while you haven't been able to for four years. When you have humility burning in your heart, you lie low to the ground and you seek to exalt people around you. So the pride is pulsing in our heart with the rules and children. You will be resentful. And it will lead to division. And it will lead to destruction in God's church. So wisdom was having learned the skill of humility. It was teaches to possess a tongue of truth, which refuses to speak to, de- to tear down others. Wisdom, we have to give our lives to the oppressed, exercising God's justice. And look at following the list. Wisdom would purify our hearts so that we would refuse to be part of any plan that would harm any other believer or any other person. And wisdom would move our feet to flee evil rather than moving towards it. And wisdom would bridle our gossiping, slandering, false witnessing tongues while we exercise the tongue of the faithful testimony of God's glory. And all the while, that wisdom is going to be promoting unity and love and peace in God's church. And you know what happens to the world? When God's church is filled with unity, they all of a sudden listen to what he says. Finally, if there's a piano band that's creating a break in this church, nobody's going to listen to the gospel today. Nobody's going to. But when we can have differences among each other, and when we can do things that I don't like, and I can say things that you don't agree with, and yet we can love each other through, we can endure not only and just putting up with each other, but moving towards each other with funds to edify and bring grace, listen, the world's going to listen. Because the world doesn't have this. And God gives wisdom to his children so that we can learn to live in a way that doesn't meet the list of seven things that come from it, but meets the list of what Jesus loves and dislikes. Friends, they can go to church together. You have wisdom? Like what James says, he brought it out from the school. Any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of the Lord, and God will give it to him generously. He's struggling with pride. He's struggling with pride. He's struggling with trying to get even with somebody who hurt you that would be wrong and make a case to Jesus. Struggling with falsehood. Ask for wisdom. And God gives peace. Live it out. In single-minded devotion, and that's what we can do for the life. Amen. Amen.